If you're new with us, uh, we're spending uh, July looking at Psalms for Troubled Souls. This is the last sermon in the little three-week series, and we're in Psalm 77 this morning, <clears throat> which is not the most popular psalm, not the most common psalm, so maybe new uh, to you, and, uh, but it's a psalm that's meant a ton to me over the last uh, year or so, and uh, really the sermon is, is still baking uh, as I'm still uh, meditating on it and uh, uh, applying it to my own heart. And I uh, just want to share some of the overflow of that with you this morning and uh, trust that God's Word will be an encouragement to you, as it's certainly encouraged my soul. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, how kind of you <clears throat> to reveal yourself to us in your Holy Word and to reveal, most of all, your Son, Jesus Christ, to us. We pray that as we look into the Word today, that you would take us from lament to praise as we ponder anew what the Almighty can do. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the things this passage shows us is something that the Psalms show us in various places, and that is the need to take truth to our trials, <clears throat> to speak the truth to our emotions, to our struggles. This is what's called a, a lament, particularly a, it's called a, a community lament. If you're not familiar with the Psalms, there are various kinds of Psalms. We have 150 of them. We have psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, psalms that celebrate God's law, historical psalms that trace the, the, the history of God's people. We have royal psalms, which we looked at last Christmas. Uh, and this is a psalm of lament. And it's interesting that one-third of the psalms are laments. One-third. A lament is a cry of distress. It's a cry of grief. Sometimes the laments are grief, uh, uh, crying about uh, the enemies uh, that surround them, that surround God's people. Sometimes it's simply a complaint to God. And I just love that God has included this many laments in the Bible. Because not everything in life is happy clappy. There's a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain in life. In that great theological movie and artistic masterpiece, The Princess Bride, uh, <laughs> Wesley says at one point, life is pain, your highness, and anyone who says differently is trying to sell you something. And I just love the fact that Christianity, if you're just perhaps exploring the faith, is not trying to sell you something. That is to say, it's not trying to sell you on this idea that there is no pain in life once you become a Christian. Actually, you're going to suffer a lot in this life. In fact, the Bible shows us that you can actually do everything right and still suffer. And if we don't believe that, just look to Jesus, the greatest person who ever lived, who is the man of sorrows. Life is pain, brokenness, despair, anxiety, dark thoughts, restless nights. These things are rarely shared on Facebook. They're rarely, you know, pictured in uh, Instagram, but this is real life. But we're not left without hope because the laments are also filled with hope. They, in fact, I was sharing with uh, Pastor Donnie and Kent the other day, as Kent was killing us in golf, uh, we were talking about the laments. It's a great place for me to talk about laments out there on the course, the way I play, uh, that almost all of the laments, with the exception, I think, of two, Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, end on a positive note. Psalm 88 ends really dark, where the psalmist says, the darkness is my closest friend, the end. <laughs> But most of them end on, on, a, on a, a word of hope, a word about God's goodness, a word about God being with them, a word about his redemption. And that's the way this one uh, flows as well. The first nine verses 
our complaints, their laments. It's the psalmist Asaph pouring out his heart to God. And then there's the pivot in verse 10, when he decides to think about the deeds of the Lord. When he decides to think about the redemption of what, uh, of, of, that, that God has given his people, then his lament moves to praise. Now, that's the question, right? Are we, are we able to complain to God? Are we able to lament to God, to pour out our heart to God? That's what these laments invite us to do. Even when we don't have it all together, we're invited into his presence so that we can process our grief in his presence and then apply the good news to our grief. One of my friends says, complain about God, it's a sin. Complain to God, it's a psalm. It's a good way to think about the lament. And this is a part of the Christian life. It's a, it's a very neglected aspect, I think, of basic discipleship. We even have a book in the Bible called Lamentations. That's all about lament. And it's so vital because we are going to suffer. We are going to experience trials. How is it that we get through these trials? How is it that we can remain faithful in the trial and not just when circumstances are good in our lives? Well, one of the ways we do that is learning to lament together. A friend of mine, Pastor Mark, up in Indianapolis, has written a great book. Some of you are familiar with this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies. And he writes about lament in this book. You notice I didn't say his last name. <coughs> you try to pronounce it. Um, but this, these are a few quotes from, from Pastor Mark. Lament invites us to grieve and trust, to struggle and believe. And you can feel that tension. That's what these laments do. There's grief and trust. There's struggle and belief. He says lament is prayer in pain that leads to trust. Or lament is the personal song that expresses our grief while embracing God's goodness. To cry is human, he says, but to lament is Christian. Now, here's the question. How do you go from lament to praise? And I think it's very simple what you see in this text. By remembering and meditating on God's past actions in salvation history. There's something that has happened objectively in space, time, and history. For them, in the Old Testament, it's the Exodus. That's the big climactic salvation event. And for us, in the New Covenant, we have a better Exodus, a greater deliverance, a greater salvation, a greater mediator, a greater Passover lamb, a greater promised land to look forward to. And we, we apply what has happened on Easter and all the ramifications of it to our grief. And if you're not a Christian, you don't have anything to remember. This is why you need to become a Christian, why you need the gospel, because I can't get from grief to praise without the gospel. The gospel is the hinge by which we go from grief to praise. Otherwise, I'm stuck in my circumstances. And Monday, I'm doing well. Tuesday, I lifted a lot of weights. Wednesday, I threw it in the gutter. Third, like I'm just up and down, up and down, you see. But it's the gospel that keeps us sane, and it keeps us faithful, keeps us thinking about that which is most important. And so this is a communal lament, the people of God rehearsing. It's like every singer is singing this song, but they're thinking about the well-being of their brother and sister, thinking together, lamenting together, moving to praise as they remember and meditate on the redeeming work of God. So that's, those are the two key words, I think, or maybe you could throw the word ponder in as well. It's the same idea, remembering, meditating. You see it there in verse 11 and 12, and pondering. That's what we have to do in order to, to go from grief into praise. Now, 
Today, you may not be in that moment. All may be well. I, I welcome both of you to the service, right? <laughs> but at some point, you're going to have an estranged relationship, and you need to follow Asaph's leadership. Asaph's become a good friend of mine. His psalms are Psalms 73 to 83. Lots of lament. He just tells it like it is, right? Maybe it's public embarrassment you've dealt with, habitual sin, deep discouragement, physical pain, doubt, grief, or your lament over things you see in society. Take Psalm 77 and apply it to your soul. Take it and apply it to other people's soul as you attempt to encourage them. Well, with all that to say, we're going to look at it in two parts. First nine verses, processing our distress in the presence of God. Second part, re remembering the redeeming work of God. Asaph, we, mentioned, we see him there in the superscription. He's one of the Levitical choir leaders. Jeduthun is one of the chief singers. Probably this song is written in his honor. Asaph is not just a choir leader, as I mentioned. He's actually a really great counselor. He can really help us. He's a better counselor than Newhart. You've seen that old clip where the guy comes in for counseling and Newhart just says what? Stop it. Just over and over. Everything the guy was trying to confess. That's his, that's his counsel. Stop it. <laughs> Asaph doesn't say in your grief, just stop it. He, he allows you to process your pain in the presence of God. He gives this heartfelt cry in verses 1 to 3. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. So the problem is not that Asaph and the people are not praying, and it's not that they don't believe God hears them. And th those are two very important things, that we're praying to God in our grief and that God is hearing us. It's really that, does God care? Right, that's where the, the, the lament goes. Has his love ceased? Has his grace been exhausted? Is he not keeping his promises? So. It's not a lack of prayer. It's, is God really tuned into me? Does he hate my guts? You know, it's kind of like when you call a company and you're, they're like, your call is very important to us. <laughs> so you're on hold for two hours. If that was so important, wouldn't you talk to me? Uh, no, that's kind of the idea here. I cry aloud to God and he will hear me, but I wonder if he cares. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. These are expressions of holding out our hands to God of desperation. One of the many postures of prayer in the Bible. And he says, I'm, I'm holding out my hands to God. In the day of trouble, I cry out to him. But my soul won't be comforted. You ever been like that? Just restless. I just, I cannot shake this. The trouble won't let up. It won't let go. The situation has not changed and doesn't seem like it will change. He is the God of all comfort, but I cannot experience comfort. Verse 3, he says, when I remember God, I moan. What a verse. You don't see that one on many coffee mugs, do you? That's not on the, uh, the wall art at the, in people's homes. When I remember God, I moan. Bless you, sister. Bless you, brother, right? <laughs> but this is, this is an honest man. What do you think about when you think of God? I moan. When I meditate, he says, my spirit faints. So you just see the emotion. 
There's emotion in, in, this, in this pilgrimage we're on as he cries out to God. And you know what? Jesus did this sort of thing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, the writer says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, listen to this, with loud cries and tears. That's how he prayed, with loud cries and tears. With this, the writer says, to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Like, cries and tears are reverent. They're acceptable because we're crying out to God. We're crying out honestly. And that's what I want you to see there in the first three verses. Even though this is a time of sorrow, even though he's moaning, even though he is, he is restless, he's at least crying out to God. He hasn't left God. He's speaking to God. Now, it may be that your temptation is not to complain about God in trials. It's that you just give God, you know, like the silent treatment. You don't talk to him at all. And we all know that the silent treatment is a real sign of resentment. You see that person at the Walmart, and you go the other aisle. You don't want to be around. This is what I love about Asaph. In the time of grief, he's at least processing his grief to God. He's crying out to God, believing that he hears him. And you may have this, this mistaken idea in these moments, does God really hear me? When, I, when my faith is really this weak. Because I, I know, I should know that his steadfast love is not going to cease. I should know his grace is not going to come to an end. I should know that all of his promises uh, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They will be fulfilled. But there are times when, when I am doubting this, when my faith is weak. And in these moments, let's be reminded that it's not so much about the strength of our faith, it's the object of our faith that matters. It's who we're praying to that matters. And even if you can't utter many words, at least stay in the presence of God. Don't leave God in the trial. And th this is what's going to make you a faithful Christian and what's going to make me a faithful Christian. It's that when the trials come, we don't abandon him. And we may pour out our hearts in complaint, asking him, what, why is this going on? And do you not care about me? Do you hate me? And he welcomes those prayers. That's a remarkable thing about our God. And you say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, just read the book of Job. Job complains the whole book. <laughs> and at the end, the most remarkable thing, God commends Job. He wants to have a word with his friends. But he commends Job. And I think that's because Job was at least talking to God. And that's what you see in this psalm, don't you? He welcomes us. He welcomes us when we're bruised, when we're battered. Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break. Richard Baxter wrote a classic book called A Bruised Reed, and he says, speaking of Jesus, he is a physician good at all diseases. <laughs> he says, if Christ be so merciful as to not break me, I will not break myself in despair. Christ won't break us. We go to him, we can cry to him, we can do this in the community of other believers, we can cry out. You don't have to apologize for crying. You ever notice how people do that? I've done that before. Oh, I'm sorry I'm crying. I'm sorry I'm getting emotional. <laughs> That's why we have tear ducts. We're supposed to use them like your mouth. We don't ever say, well, I'm sorry I'm talking. No, you got a mouth, like, right? <laughs> you have tear ducts. You use them for the right reasons. 
You know, I remember, uh, yes, no crying in baseball. Don't listen to, to Tom Hanks. There's plenty of crying in baseball. I've done plenty of it in my life. Uh, and there, no crying in church, wrong. No crying in small group, wrong. No, we lament as the people of God because we're not home. We're, we're, we long for that. And lament really does reveal to us what our longings are. And, and lament can open us up to experience the grace and mercy of God in fresh ways. I remember in, uh, back in the day when I was a new Christian at FCA, they'd be like, go around and meet three people and tell them your favorite verse. I didn't have any verses. I didn't know any verses. And I'd always say, Jesus wept. That's a full verse. That counts, right? And that's not just a verse for you to memorize and that one you can memorize. It's a profound example for us to follow. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. Even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, he still wept. And we follow his, his example. We weep with those who weep. We lament with those who lament. We're sorrowful and those are, others are sorrowful. The new creation is to come. We're not in Zion yet. We're not feasting yet. So that's Asaph leading us in the first three verses. Verses four to nine, he then gives a specific complaint, which is, I've already alluded to, wondering, has God rejected his people? Has God turned his back on us? Has he withdrawn his favor and his love and his compassion? He mentions more of his emotional distress in verse four when he says to God, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I pray before that people's eyelids would stay open during my sermon. But here, the psalmist is actually accusing God of holding his eyelids open. You are the reason I can't sleep. He's sleepless and notice he's speechless. And grief does that, doesn't it? It leaves you sleepless and speechless. I've been so speechless, believe it or not, in times of grief where I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm actually tired of talking to people. You ever feel like that? And you don't have any energy to do things you otherwise would have loved to do. That's the kind of thing that you can... You can identify with Asaph here. He's, he's identifying with you in his, in his grief, in his tossings. And I've always loved Psalm 56, verse 8, regarding God. He keeps count of our tossings, and he puts our tears in his bottle. God, we, some of us have given him a lot to count. He's had to do a lot of arithmetic because we've tossed a lot. It's in the middle of the night often, isn't it, that we have these anxieties. During the day, we can be distracted by work. And at night, our thoughts can just get the best of us. And we can roll around at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., or maybe that's just me, thinking about the worst thing that could ever happen to you and happen to your family. Think about illness. You think about wayward children. You think about finances. You think about your to-do list. You think about everything under the sun. Asaph helps us process this, helps us stay in the presence of God with this. Don't leave God in those moments of tossing. Know that he's keeping count of them. He's aware of you. He got your tears in a bottle. Like that's how near he is. He doesn't just love us when we're having a good day. He loves us when we're tossing, when we're sleepless, and when we're speechless. He says in verse 5, I try to think about the old days. <laughs> I try to think about the glory days. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, and I say... <clears throat> Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Now, that's good. He's, he's headed in the right direction, only 
He doesn't arrive at a good spot. And what he's led to meditate on is wondering again about whether or not God has changed. As I sit here and I wrestle around, as I toss and I turn, as I languish in my grief, I'm wondering if God who was favorable is now no longer favorable. That the God who was <coughs> once said to be of steadfast love has removed it. That his promises, he doesn't have any more promises for me. And he's forgotten to be gracious and he's angry. That's the psalmist here wrestling, even though he knows the text we just read previously, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's true. That's objectively true. And yet he's bringing these questions. These questions have clear answers already revealed by God. If God abounds in steadfast love, his steadfast love has not ceased. If he is faithful, then his promises are not at an end. If he is gracious, he will not fail to be gracious. But he believes, again, that God has changed. What's happened? And in these moments, we have to remember the covenant nature of God. He is faithful. We take the truth of the Bible to our emotions, to our feelings. And remember that he has a covenantal love for us. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the little children's book says that God's covenant is this, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, forever love. I love that. But he's, he's, he's wrestling. So here, here's Asaph now. Honest prayer, confession, even repentance, I think, is he's mentioning anger, some sense of sin that may have brought upon this condition. <clears throat> and in this, he's leading the people of God to draw near to God. Second part of the, the psalm. This is where it goes up. Asaph, after processing this, this distress in the presence of God, remembers the redeeming work of God. This is how Asaph rallies and how he leads the people to rally. You know, sometimes as a parent, we, we've said this before about our kids. They're having a bad day, but they rallied. They turned it around. <laughs> Hopefully you'll have some of those, those memories if you don't have them now. But how is it that the people of God rally? They rally by remembering God's redeeming work. This is the great pivot. The Exodus, if you're new to the Bible, is that great event in the Old Testament. God's people were in slavery in Egypt, <clears throat> and the Lord brought them out of slavery, miraculously delivered them, judged Egypt with plagues and the death of the firstborn. He parted the waters of the sea, led them through the waters, and then on the other side provided for their every need and then took them to the promised land eventually. You could summarize it like this. The Lord brought them out. The Lord brought them through. The Lord brought them into. That's our God. He brings us out of our greatest problem. The Exodus is a foreshadowing of a greater salvation. He's brought us out of Satan's sin and death. He's bringing us through this wilderness called life. And he's taking us to the promised land, the new heaven and new earth. That's what we have to fill our hearts and minds with when we are in verses 1 to 9. And the people of God were prone to forget. And that's why you see this call again and again and again in the Old Testament. Remember, remember, remember. He gave them the Passover meal so they would never forget what he did for them in Egypt. So he says, remember the mighty acts of God, verses 10 to 12. See the great transition. Then I said. This is very similar to uh, the but God statement in the New Testament. This was our condition, but God. 
Or it's similar to uh, Asaph's psalm in Psalm 73, where he's lamenting over, it seems like the wicked are, are prospering. And he goes through this whole ordeal. And then he gets to around the middle of the psalm and says, but then I went to the sanctuary of God, and I discerned their end. I put this experience in the real picture of who God is and what God is doing. That's the idea here. He, he, is, he, he dares to preach the gospel to himself and to the people of God. I will appeal. I will argue with my soul, even though my soul is saying, it's hopeless, pal. I will make an appeal to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. I'll, I'll, I'll think on, <coughs> on, on Yahweh <clears throat> and his great deliverance and how he has been faithful generation after generation. And I will consider, he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. There's the real key. How can we go from lament to praise? Remembering, pondering, meditating. Now, friends, none of that can be done in a hurry, can it? It requires conscious effort, deliberate, slow, intentional thought to ponder, to meditate, to remember. We do this as we read the scriptures, as we sing together, as we remember the Lord's death and the Lord's supper. God gives us means by which we can remember and ponder and meditate so that we don't languish in our grief, that we can apply the gospel to our broken hearts in these times. Asaph is doing that and his doubts and discouragements get swallowed up into worship when he remembers. It's almost like we need a bigger problem to think about and realize that one's solved, that we can put our other problems in, in, in that context. We're not going to hell if we're Christians, all right? Let's work from there. <laughs> our greatest problem is solved. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No wrath remains for us. Only goodness and mercy, right? So we gotta bear with this momentary light affliction, the Bible calls it. Not to minimize it, but so you can think about the greatness of eternity and all that is in store for his people. He says, I've got some problems. Oh, I thought about another problem. It was a greater one. They were stuck in Egypt. We needed a miracle. We needed to be redeemed. And that's how he goes from lament into praise, isn't it? Notice how he speaks of God's greatness in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Now, I love this is the same guy who just said up in verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. When I think about you, I moan. And now he's like, what God is like you? You are holy. You see, that's what's happened because verse 11 and 12 happened. I remembered, I meditated, I pondered, and now all of a sudden, I got a proper perspective. I got the right perception of God. So the problem is not God, our, it's our perception of God. And fortunately, God has revealed himself to us in his word so that we can get a proper perception of him. But if we don't slow down and remember and meditate and ponder, we're stuck in the first nine verses. That's why we have to apply this word to our hearts and remember his wonders. I love verse 14. You are the God who works wonders. This is the same Asaph that was just complaining to God is now recognizing that he is the God who's worked wonders, who's made his might known among the peoples. And we on this side of the cross have even more wonders to think about. We have, we have things that, that we can think about that's happened in redemptive history that, that transcend even the wonderful work of the Exodus. 
But God has worked wonders. Tim Keller said he knew a lady who had a chronic illness, and he said people would ask her occasionally, you know, how are you feeling? Doesn't it hurt? Aren't you in pain? And he said she would often respond with, nothing that the resurrection won't cure. <laughs> I say we start using that, huh? How you doing, Tony? Terrible, but the resurrection will fix it all, right? Why? Because he works wonders. And this is why one of the many reasons we would love for you to come to Christ if you're not a Christian. This is the hope of the gospel. If this life is heaven, this is not great. Our heaven's to come. And it's assured because he is the God who's brought redemption. Verse 15, he's redeemed us. We can't redeem ourselves. The people of God could not bring themselves out of Egypt. Couldn't do it. Only God could do it. And it wasn't because Moses was so great. <laughs> I mean, you talk about a jam. You got to Egypt and you've got the Red Sea. And here, here's, here's God's plan. Hey, Moses, hold the air, stick out. I'll part the water. Good job, Moses. Man, he's a great leader, isn't he? Like, hold, hold up your stick, pal, and watch this. Because salvation is of the Lord. In fact, in one place he says, don't do anything. Stop and watch the salvation of the Lord. I'm going to do it. He redeems the people. And so Asaph's getting, getting people's mind on redemption. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do this work. We are stuck in slavery to sin, Satan, and death, but God. He has intervened. He has stepped in with Jesus Christ, the ultimate mediator, and he's brought us out. He brought the people of God out, verse 16 to 20, through the sea. I love how the psalmist then ends by speaking of God's intervention in a, an impossible situation that they were in. And when God intervenes, he said it's like cataclysmic events are occurring. He is in control of all of creation. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The whole world is in his hands. The waters were places of chaos, and yet God could do whatever he wanted with the waters. That's why when Jesus calmed the storm, they looked at Jesus and said, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and waves obey him? Only God creates and controls the waters. The clouds poured out water. Skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side, likening the lightning and the storms of uh, uh, the parting of the sea. And, and perhaps Sinai's in mind here too. The whole Exodus event, like his arrows, he's using the aspects of creation to do his work. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, perhaps a statement about the parting of the seas. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Your footprints were unseen. Beautiful picture here. God didn't take them around the sea. <laughs> they never would have imagined this. What are we going to do? They actually wanted to kill Moses. We, 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 had, we had meat, they said back in Egypt. We had all this stuff. But God took them through the sea. He, his ways often work counterintuitively. He does things. He confounds the wise with his redeeming work. And then there's this picture of a calm journey of a flock. God's ways were unseen. That is, he, he was invisible, but the people of God were visible. And they were being led by Moses and Aaron, the under-shepherds 
of the divine shepherd who leads his people like a flock. Asaph, Psalm 78, 52, uses this language of the shepherd a lot. Then he led out his people like a sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. In the same Exodus, or, uh, Psalm 80, Asaph says in verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Our God leads us like a flock. He is leading us through this wilderness of life, taking us to the promised land, and that's what we have to rehearse. That's what we have to remember. So the psalmist goes from trouble to joy, from distress to praise, when he slows down and reflects on the redeeming work of God in the past, especially the event of the Exodus. And today, you and I as Christians have even more wonders to look back upon and apply to our lives as that event anticipated the ultimate work of redemption that happened through Jesus Christ, the ultimate rescue. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. God's way, the writer says, was through the sea. The people were toast. They had no hope. But God confounds the minds of individuals with his ways. And the cross and the resurrection is the ultimate instance of this. In the Old Testament, God's way was through the sea. But we as New Covenant believers can say God's way was through the cross. God's way was through an empty tomb. He has provided salvation. He has stepped in and intervened in an impossible scenario, unless we ever doubt his love, unless we, we ever wonder with Asaph, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his steadfast love ceased? Have his promises come to an end? Remember that something has happened in space, time, and history to prove once and for all that God is for us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Something objective has happened to prove once and for all that he loves us, that he's with us, that he will never forsake us. In our time of grief, in our lament, we look to the cross of Jesus Christ until we go from lament into praise. We look back at the crucifixion, at the resurrection, at the ascension, and we remember that our greatest problem has already been solved in and through Jesus Christ. And this gives us confidence in the present, and it gives us confidence as we look into the future. Amen. Praise be to God yes. for his word. Father, we bless you for your promises, for revealing yourself to us. Help us to take our truth, take your truth to our trials, to apply the good news to our grief, that we too may go from, from sorrow to praise as we remember the mighty deeds of the Lord. We do that now as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.